0: This morning, we are going to continue in our series in James. This has been, every once in a while you get a series where you hear a whole lot of comments about it. Every week, I hear comments. Some good, some bad, some in between, but I mean, it's just like on everybody's mind. It's just like, oh man, James has a lot to say. And and that's exciting uh, for a pastor when he hears uh, a number of people who just are feeding on God's Word as, as we go through this series. Uh, James is going to continue today to show us that our behavior can bring assurance of our salvation or it can bring doubt into our lives about salvation. And uh, we have to understand that it's a hard book, it's a hard letter, because he's, gonna, he's making us take a look in the mirror. And I hope I remember to say this at the end, but the, the reason why he wants us to take a look so intimately into this mirror, is because it's our different behavior that makes us good witnesses. It's our different behavior. It's our different priorities. It's our different look on life. It's our different worldview that makes us effective witnesses because we don't live life like everybody else. We don't think about life like everybody else. We don't raise kids like everybody else. We don't spend our weekends the same as everybody else because we are different. He has been clear that true religion shows itself in a deep desire to care for orphans and widows. True religion shows in its desire to be impartial. And today he is going to continue this line of thought about true religion and this idea about being hearers and doers. He's, going to, he's continuing on that whole line of thought by addressing the issue of how our faith plays into us uh, in showing our genuine salvation, a genuine faith. And we must carry this idea it will be carried out through all of the letter of James faith is very practical and that's what he's saying our faith just isn't some theological idea our faith changes us our faith makes us act differently as I've already said in patterns of behavior every Christ follower looks the same in that area because we all have the same Holy Spirit within us And so, what he's going to deal with today is he's going to start dealing with this idea of how faith plays into this, how faith leads to behavior patterns that identify us as Christ followers. The word faith shows up a lot in our culture today, doesn't it? People talk about all sorts of of about faith in all sorts of ways. In an effort to encourage a friend who's going through tough times, you may hear someone say, "Just have faith that will everything turn out right." How many of you have heard that or something of that realm? Maybe you've heard people talking about how they have faith in a certain political candidate that will actually be able to change a town or a state or even our country. I have faith in this guy that that or this woman they're going to be able to change the politics of our nation. Or maybe you've heard someone say they have faith in a scientific breakthrough or this breakthrough will provide a way for them to get over an illness or cancer or depression, or whatever. They have faith that the science will do this. Most every religion I know uses the word faith in their belief system. But faith is often defined very differently in those religions than the definition we find in the Bible. The biblical definition of faith, and that's, the faith, and that's where we need to start this morning, the biblical definition is found in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's uh, one that most of us are familiar with. The writer of Hebrews says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen that's a biblical definition of faith essentially what the writer of Hebrews is saying is faith is confidence that things yet future and unseen will happen as God has revealed they will that's what he's saying in 11, Hebrews 11 1. it's an absolute trust that What God has said, what God has designed will happen. When God says, if you believe in my Son, Jesus Christ, if you have a genuine faith in my Son, uh, Jesus Christ, I will give you eternity with me. Amen? That's faith. It's unseen, but we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's going to happen. That's what is being described by biblical faith. Faith is so important on many different levels to us as Christ followers. I'd like to show you just three facts about faith that clearly reveal the deep impact faith has on our lives. We know that without faith it is impossible. What's it say? Say that word, impossible. To please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. If we don't have faith, it's impossible to please God. Period. We also find in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We know that salvation comes to our lives through faith. And without faith there is no salvation. It is impossible to be saved from your sin without biblical faith. Faith matters in our lives. We also know that we are to examine ourselves. Examine our faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. How many of you have ever really latched on to what that is saying? And that's written in a a way in the Greek that it's a continuous process. It's not just examining yourself once. It's not just looking in the mirror once and walking away. It's something that should be done all the time. Test Yourselves is written in the same way. It is a continuous testing to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. Paul is clear. Faith is not something you take for granted. It must be regularly examined, ensuring that our faith is genuine. Faith is vital in establishing a saving relationship with God. Faith is vital in obeying God's commands Faith is vital in developing proper relationships with other Christ followers and even those who are not Christ followers, even those who are unbelievers. Our faith is vital in establishing those relationships in the right and proper way. The question we need to ask, and this is such an important question, since faith makes such an impact on our lives, how do I test myself to know if I truly have biblical faith the faith needed to please God through obedience to his commands and to be sure of my salvation so that I can build appropriate relationships. That's a really important question. It's a long one, but it's really important. How do I know that I have that faith? What is the proof in my life that I have that faith? Our passage this morning is going to answer that question and Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this passage, it is going to be challenging. It's going to uh, make us look in the mirror of our spiritual lives. And Father, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves before you. I pray, Lord, that there will be rejoicing if we find ourselves where we need to be. And Father, I pray that there will be a time of reflection and a time of real sorrow, maybe, if we find out that we're not walking where we need to so that our lives can change, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Uh, we've already become familiar with the book of James or his little letter that he's written because every sermon, we find that James is getting right to the point. He doesn't mince words. He's just talking to his dispersed flock and he's going to lay it right on the table. He says, hey, we're going to discuss this now and he lays it out on the table And what's he laying out on the table today? Something that we very rarely ever think about. Not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The first question that James asks here is basically saying that the benefit of a faith that doesn't show its genuineness through works, he's saying it is false faith. It is not saving faith. He asks two questions. Both of these questions are written in a way that it's rhetorical, and both of them are written in a way that he says the suggested answer, what he expects everybody to answer is no. Can this faith save? And the answer to that is what? no there is no salvation in a faith that doesn't prove itself through works that's hard how many of you ever considered that not all faith that we claim in the church is saving faith how many of you have ever wrestled with that james is laying it right out he says we're going to wrestle with it right now we're going to wrestle with it He has made it clear a person can make a profession of faith that does not lead to salvation And we need to let that sink in. Let that rest on our minds. Let it pierce our hearts, because who's he writing to? Is he writing to the general population, or is he writing to his flock? Why would he write this to his flock if this wouldn't be an issue for them? And that means it's an issue for whom also? Us sitting here. It's something that we need to look in the mirror for. Not all professions of faith lead to salvation from sins. Not all faith is genuine faith. James is not teaching us something new here. You know where he got it from? His brother. And who is his brother? Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21-23. through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So if somebody comes to Jesus or would come to somebody like that and say, Lord, Lord, what are they saying? You are my master. I belong to you. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody who thinks they belong to Jesus Christ is going to go to heaven. How clear is he here? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. James is not introducing anything new. He learned this from his brother. That not all faith is saving faith. I am absolutely positive that the eyebrows of those that James was writing to, just like I'm sure that some of your eyebrows did were raised as soon as he said that as soon as he introduced that thought but that's exactly what james is laying out and we see paul so we see jesus christ introducing that concept we see james which is probably the earliest epistle in our bible and then many years later we see paul following up second corinthians thirteen five. examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless what? Unless you fail the test. Continually examine yourselves. Continually test yourselves to make sure that you don't fail this test. Why would James do this? Why would he address this with his dispersed flock? He knows as his Flock builds new lives in the pagan cities they have fled to. They will spread the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because that's what we do as Christ followers, true? He knows there will be professions of faith that follow their gospel presentations. He knows, as is still true today, that there will be professions of faith in Jesus Christ that are Christ that are not based on a genuine faith. They're based on emotion. They're based on tradition. They're based on a mom twisting A child's arm saying, you've got to do this, but not genuine faith. So he lays out before them, he says, hey, let's talk about what real faith looks like so you can test yourselves. Don't we need to know what real faith looks like so we know how to test ourselves? There should be no doubt in our minds now that there is a faith that doesn't save, and that that leads us to conclude this. There are two different types of faith described in the Bible, and with the help of of James, we will call these two types of faith dead faith and living faith. Dead faith and living faith. And of course, what's he going to start with? He is going to put us right in front of the mirror and he goes before I talk about what true living faith is before you understand what true living faith is we're going to talk about dead faith. We're going to talk about that faith that is absolutely not genuine in a believer in somebody who professes Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 18 through 20 and also in verse 24. So the first thing we find out is dead faith is what? Dead Look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. That is the normal word for death in the Greek language. It is dead, it is going to rot away. There is no life, it's really dead. We see this also in verse 26. Drop down to verse 26. He makes the exact same statement. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is what? Say it with me. Is dead. Really dead. There is no little spark of life left hoping to be fanned to flame again. And we must grasp this. If someone professes faith in Jesus Christ, but there is no life change demonstrated by a growing heart's desire to do good works as defined by God's Word, then their faith, James says very, very clearly, is dead. It's dead. And then starting in verse 14, James begins to lay out on the table that he's presenting to them a description of what this dead faith looks like. So we're going to look at dead faith described and the first thing we find out which we've already briefly talked about, is dead faith can't save. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And this is a question, the next question, he's asking in a way that he expects a no answer. Can that faith save him? And what is the answer that he expects? No, it cannot. Let me help you grasp what this means. James is saying it is very possible for someone to admit they are a sinner. Say a prayer. Say they believe Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead and still not be saved. Still be dead in their trespasses and sin and still not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit even if they go through all that process. And this shakes so many of us to our cores. Brings earthquake to our lives. It drives us to ask, how then can we be sure our faith is not dead? And he begins to answer that question in verse 14, and he expands on it in verses 17 through 18. So how do we begin to identify this? And we're going to look at how to identify what is dead faith first this week, and then next week we're going to look at how to identify living faith. So this week, how do we identify this dead faith? It is void of good works. I want to read, uh, we've already read verse 14. Let's read verses 17 through 18. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then jump down to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He keeps saying it over and over and over. Genuine faith faith, results in good works. Dead faith results in no good works. That's his point. When someone makes a genuine profession of faith, the Bible is clear good works becomes a very very natural part of their lives they become like part of who they are they can't help themselves they're going to grow in that and we see this in a number of different verses Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 for we are his workmanship whose workmanship God's he has done something to us created in Christ Jesus for what good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk of them. We were saved for good works. There is no idea in the Bible anywhere that you can be saved and not have good works be growing in your life. Period. Can't do it. We were saved to good works. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why are they praying that? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this is, he's talking about how do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of our saving faith, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in what? Every good work. There must be the fruit of good works in our lives if we say that we have professed Jesus Christ. If there is a lack of good works in our lives, then our faith, or that professed faith, James is very clear, and so is Paul, and so is Jesus Christ. It is dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Amen? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, which means he can do what? Everything necessary for what? So that you may what? Abound. Not just do something over here. Not just do something over here. Hey, mark it off the calendar. I've done 15 good works this year. It is part of our lives. Our lives speak to good works. They abound. They're overabundantly evident. Nobody has to look at our lives and wonder, are they doing good works? Because they're abounding in our lives if we have genuine faith and not a dead faith. Titus 2.14, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from a lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. God brought you to himself. You were created as his possession for what? For those who are what? Zealous. Again, that idea. We are looking for it. We want to have good works in our lives and we know what zealousness is there's something in every single one of our lives that we're zealous for and i'm not saying that's bad i'm going to point out some of your zealousness okay richard is zealous for his tractor anybody here doubt that nobody doubted it richard michelle is zealous for what music Tammy is zealous for what? Children. My wife is zealous for her grandchildren and for me. We all have something that we're zealous for, that we're zealous toward. And we can name those things in our lives, can't we? But can we honestly look in the mirror and say, I am zealous for good works because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Can we identify that in our lives like we identify other things that we're zealous for? And we can go on and on with these verses. This is not a slight topic in the Bible. But we do have to define something. What's a good work? You don't get to define what that good work is. You see, if we're designed to, by God to have good works in our lives that He has determined beforehand, then He's already defined what a good work is. So what is a good work? Basically, it is anything done in obedience to God's command. It is anything done in obedience to God's command to bring glory to God. Good works starts with obedience. Anything done in obedience to God's command to bring glory to God. I'm going to run you through a number of these. Look back up to James chapter 1 verse 27. James chapter 1 verse 27. We're looking at God's definition of good works. Religion. That is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Is that a good work in God's eyes? Yes, it is. That means you have to have a desire, a growing desire to take care of those who are in need. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31 and what we find out here is that this is the final judgment. This is at the end. This is where we're going to be judged whether we're in Christ or out of Christ. Look at verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and then before Him will be all of us. Can't wait for that day. I cannot wait to see my Savior, Jesus Christ, on His throne. Then drop down to verse 35. Let's actually go to verse 34, when the king will say to those on his right, come, to you, come who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Did we see a whole list there of good works? Absolutely. Feeding, giving drink. Welcoming strangers into our homes, and to our lives, visiting those who are in prison, clothing those who don't have enough clothes. He used that to say, I know you are saved because you did these things. I know you have a genuine faith because you did these things. I know that your faith is alive because you did these things. And we're not going to read it, but just a few verses later, he looks at people on his left. And he uses the exact same good works criteria for condemning them for all of eternity. Good works is not light business here, folks. It's not light business. Good works determines whether your faith is dead or whether your faith is alive. Bottom line. And James is making it very clear. How about these? The one another's. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another, accepting one another, patient with one another, seeking the good of one another, serving one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another, building up one another, praying for one another, being hospitable to one another. Are all those good works? There's like 30 or 35 one another's, and those all are good works those are these are all lists in there that we can come to and look in the mirror and say is this my heart's desire or is it just platitudes with my mouth which we'll look at here in just a minute and then we have this good work go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all things that i've commanded you and behold i am with you always to the end of the age is that a good work When is the last time you talk to somebody about your faith, about your salvation, about what God did for you? Because every time you do, that is a good work that shows that your heart is growing in the right direction. If you don't, then you must ask why. This is hard look, isn't it, in the mirror today? Turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. Remember, we're still defining what a good work is. Romans 12. Paul has laid out a treatise on what salvation is in chapters 1 through 11. And then he is going to take a turn now, a major turn in chapter 12, and he's going to say, this is what true salvation is looks like in your life this is what true faith looks like in your life and we're just going to look at a couple of them look at verse 10 of chapter 12 love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality verses 14 and 15 bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Look at verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then drop down to verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. All good works. Throughout the entire Bible, we see this list of growing ideas of what God says is a good work. Flip over one chapter, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, is that a good work? Absolutely, look at verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love the neighbor as yourself, is that a good work? Absolutely. God leaves no doubt to what his definition of good works is. Are these showing themselves in your life? Are these abundantly visible in your life? Does your life show that you are zealous for them? And the list could go on. James is clear. If good works are not growing, developing in your daily walk, then you must look in the mirror and ask, is my faith dead? And then he moves into verse 15 where James gives an illustration of dead faith. And here's what he helps us see. Dead faith is nothing more than talk, is hot air. Dead faith is nothing more than hot air. Look at what he says in in this example in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If if this was to happen, and notice his audience that he uses in the example. Well, who's his audience? Who's he talking about? Brothers and sisters in Christ. He is limiting this illustration, not doing good works outside the church, not doing good works to non-believers that comes in a different place in this example he is limiting this idea of good works to brothers and sisters doing good works to each other within the body of christ and we have to understand something what would they have thought the universal church or the people in their church it's the people in their church Your faith can be determined whether it's alive or dead depending on how you serve, how you meet the needs of people in this church that God has called you to. And this speaks volumes about being intimately attached to a local church body. You can't minister to the brothers and sisters in the church God has placed you in unless you are there and involved and attached and getting to know people. This illustration would have caught the attention of the readers and we have to remember the situation. James is writing to people who are displaced because of persecution. Many of them would have been in chronic need of food and clothing. There would have been many opportunities to relieve the suffering among believers. They were living this out in the church where they were at in the pagan cities. And he says, first, are you doing this? Is your face showing itself to the brothers and sisters that you meet and worship with every week? We may not live in the same situation that they were, but there are going to be times when a father loses his job and the family needs long-term help until another job is found. And it is not the church's organization, as an organization, to come up with the money. It is up for the individuals in the church all to gather around and give of their own resources to make sure that this family has enough while the father is looking for another job. So often, this type of ministry has been shifted to Sardis Baptist Church as an organization. Go to the church, they'll give you the money. That's not what was happening here. And we see this back in Acts. People were giving to their hurt, to those who had a need. They were selling land, not because the church told them to, but because they were driven to by the Holy Spirit to provide for the needs of those who had need. I'm not saying it's bad for Sardis Baptist Church as an organization to help. That's okay. But when it becomes exclusively the responsibility of the church as an organization and not our individual responsibilities to take the time to drive over to their house, to take the time to help, to take the time to do what we have to do to get in their lives, we have missed the boat. It may be a single mom or dad who needs continued help with childcare or transportation. It may be an elderly person who cannot live on a fixed income. And James's point in this illustration, dead faith doesn't meet the clear, long-term or short-term needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. Dead faith greets the needy brother or sister with kind words and warm blessings, but no action. That's what the illustration shows. And James asks, "What good is this faith? What good is faith that has words but no action? Praying for brothers and sisters' needs when you have the means to help meet the need reveals a faith that is dead. It is nothing more than a faith that is hot air. Be warm, be filled. God will take care of you. Call the church office, they'll take care of you. That faith is a dead faith. And James is a wise pastor. James addresses a plausible argument against what he is writing with an imaginary opponent. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, he says, he has an imaginary partner here. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Hey God, hey. He's telling this imaginary opponent hey James you need to kind of back off a little bit I think you're overstating this a little bit God didn't make us all the same for example he's given you the gift of faith but he's given me the gift of works it's okay if we don't all respond to our faith in the same way but James shuts that argument down and he writes okay Prove to me you have faith without works, and his point, you won't be able to. There's no way to prove your faith without works. He says, you prove to me your faith without works. And his implied idea there is, you can't. He says, then I, I will prove to you my faith with my works. You'll be able to see my faith in action. You'll be able to see God moving in me because I want to serve those that I love within the church. His point, genuine faith is always proven by behavior. Genuine faith is always, always proven by behavior. Good works demonstrates that faith is real. If there is no proof of faith in the behavior of a professing Christ follower, then their faith, as James is making abundantly clear, is absolutely dead. Dead faith is dead because it can't save. It's void of good works, and it's nothing more than hot air, is what James is saying. And James closes this section with one more observation about dead faith, dead faith can be theologically sound. Dead faith can be theologically sound. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He refers here to, uh, remember, he's talking to mainly Jews. Most of his dispersed flock would be Jewish uh, by nationality. And he refers to one of the most foundational theological truths of the Jews and even us as Christians of our faith. And that is God is one. Our God is one. It is a basic, foundational, cornerstone truth. And we see that all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Listen to what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, remember this is the Jewish scriptures, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. A theological statement of truth. Has that changed today? Absolutely not. Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what is the reaction to that belief? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. What does love always act on? Other people's needs. These verses are known as the Shema, which is an important Jewish prayer still said daily today in Jewish homes And this would have meant a great deal to his flock because they were mostly Jewish, as I said. But his next statement would have shocked him. It's good you believe that theological truth, but he says, you want to know who else believes that theological truth? The demons. And his point, are the demons saved? Because they believe a theological point. No, who knew even more than the Jewish nation, the Jewish folks, who knew even more the truth that God is one? The demons. Why? They've been in heaven. They believe that truth at a, at a level that us humans cannot even imagine, that the Jewish nation could not even imagine. And his point is, you say that because you know the Word, you know the Scriptures, that you, that you love the Scriptures, that you know that your faith is genuine because of that. And he goes, that's not true. Because how many of the theological truths do the demons know? All of them. To a much greater level than we do. This would have shaken his flock to the core. Theology was part of their lives from a very early age. And they continue on here in Deuteronomy, in verse 7, parents are instructed you shall teach them, your children. You shall teach the Ten Commandments. You shall teach these theological truths that God is one. When you sit in the house, and when you, uh, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. From the time that they could walk, from the time that they could understand, they were steeped in theological terms and theological beliefs. And he says it doesn't make any difference. He says, because you can believe all that stuff and still not have a live faith. They can still be dead. The Jews, as a nation, were proud of their theological prowess. They, as God's chosen people, knew more about God than any other people group on earth. Yet James does make it clear, sound theology, knowing great truths about God doesn't mean a person's faith is genuine. Intellectual mastery of knowledge about God can and often does exist quite well with a dead faith. How do we know that biblically? Look at this. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28. This is one of the woes that Jesus Christ himself is speaking. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. How much theological truth did they know? They had great portions of the Old Testament scriptures memorized. Memorized. It was part of their job to interpret for the whole nation. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs with outwardly appearing beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were great theologians, and they were unsaved. They had no love for God. They had love for their position. They had love for uh, there are people that help make them rich. They preferred the great seats in the halls. They love their authority. They love their status. And Jesus calls them out and says, you look good on the outside, but inside you are dead. The Jewish religious leaders were theological giants, but they proved their faith was a dead faith because they lorded their authority over people that they were supposed to care for. And this is still true today. Make no mistake. Knowing a lot about the Bible, being able to teach others biblical truths, being able to quote hundreds of verses, being able to discuss deep theological truths, going to Bible school and seminary, being able to do Greek and Hebrew does not mean that your faith is alive. It does not mean your faith is alive. Your faith could still be dead even with all that training. James' main point, the only real proof your faith, of your faith, the only real proof that your faith is not a dead faith is that your life is full of good works, which we defined as anything done in obedience to God's commands to bring glory to God. That's the only way you can prove your faith. That's, that's the only way that you can have assurance in your faith if your life is zealous for good works, as God defines good works. And he sums it all up in verse 20. Do you want to be shown you foolish persons? He's getting ready to switch his example here. He's been talking all this time about a dead faith. He's getting ready to switch to that living faith, which we're going to look at next week or the next couple of weeks when we get back. But listen to how he ends this. Do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? What's he say? faith without works is useless it has no earthly or eternal merit to it and the way that james write this writes this he puts it with a play on words in the greek faith that has no works doesn't work that's what james says a more direct statement from the greek Faith that has no works doesn't work. Now it's time to look in the mirror. It's time to be honest with ourselves. It's time to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, to test ourselves, as Paul put it, by asking this question. What does my life show in regard to good works that gives me assurance that my faith is not a dead faith? What in my life gives me assurance as far as good works that my faith is not a dead faith? And remember again what the Bible's definition of good works is. Anything done in obedience to God's commands to bring glory to God. It's not just going out and doing good works. We have people in the world who do good works. Many unsaved people in the world do good works. And it means nothing to God. It doesn't mean it doesn't benefit the people around. It doesn't mean uh, that they're doing a bad thing, but it does mean that they do not change their standing before God. They may genuinely care for other people, but their heart, attitude, and motivation are not driven by a love for God and a deep desire to bring Him glory. This is why you and I, as members of Sardis Baptist Church, need to ask ourselves do the various ministry activities we do really point people to Jesus Christ we do good ministry here we do good fall festival we do good Easter we do uh, good trips to Agomas we help people but you want to know something there's other people out there who aren't saved who do the same thing what makes what we do as a church different because it points people to God, it points people to Jesus Christ, and if it doesn't do that, then we need to step back and say, how can we change this to make sure that it happens? How can we bring glory to God through this? How can the gospel be spread because of what we do? Because if we're not spreading the gospel, if people do not come face to face with Jesus Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, in our ministries, then our ministries are falling short. And I'm not saying that we do. We do some great ministry that focuses people's lives on Jesus Christ. We do. We have strong ministries, but we have to always do what? Test our ministries. Test to make sure that we have not drifted. Test that we're not doing something just because the community likes it, but that it reaches out and that it shows them a Christ-like attitude. I stopped here this week because I believe we all need to take some time to reflect on what James has written. As I said before, the next section of his letter is much more positive because it describes what living faith looks like. And that's what we really, we want to know, what does a living faith look like, amen? I mean, that's the positive side of the coin. But you know what a habit is that we have? When we see something that's negative put before our faces, we kind of have a tendency to gloss over that in God's Word and immediately go to the positive. I like this part. I'll kind of look at myself in the mirror but I want to know what living faith looks like. And as soon as we understand what living faith looks like, then we make this list. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I have living faith. That is not what James is saying here. It's something that we all need to examine and look at in our lives today. Does my life honestly show through good works that my faith is not dead? does my life really show my faith is alive and not just hot air? Let's not be afraid to consider that question over the next couple of weeks before we get into the living faith portion of this, of this book. Let's look in the, in the mirror and see what God reveals to us as we look in the mirror of our lives, our spiritual lives. You see, James's words are really personal here and it makes us look in the mirror but it also causes us to look at other people's lives not in a judgmental way but in a way that maybe grips our hearts and breaks our hearts and makes us concerned because we have so many people in our lives that claim to be christ followers and they show little if any concern about good works that bring glory to god and you can't look at them, you look at them and say, hey, let's talk about this. How does your, your daily life show through good works that you're saved? And as soon as you say that, I'm saved. I did it in Sunday school when I was five years. Well, if that's the last time you took an examination, there's a problem. That's been a long time. You see, as we look at our loved ones and our coworkers and our, those that we go to school with, We need to pray, Lord God, they claim to be a Christ follower, but their lives do not show it. Lord God, will you use me? Don't walk up to them and say, I don't think you're saved. Probably not a right way to do that. But you can pray, Lord God, if you can use me as a tool to help me, help them see that their life of faith may not be an alive faith. Use me. Because when we see this, It's going to happen. You're going to see somebody in your family or somebody you care about and say, you know, I'm not sure. It is not that we become judges, but good works is a really good identifier, isn't it? You see, it's our different behavior that makes us effective witnesses. If our lives look just like theirs, if our priorities are just like theirs, if our wants and desires are just like theirs, then why do they need our Savior? Why do they need our Savior? But when they look at our lives, then it's different. When they look at our heart's desire for other people and the people within the church and our families, and they see good works abounding, and they look at us and go, why? Then we become effective witnesses. Everybody bow your head for just a minute, please. I'm not going to reiterate or go over what we've just looked at in the Word of God. You all know. It's really clear. It wasn't complicated. Now it's time for you to look in the mirror of your heart and just honestly ask, First, am I zealous for good works? Do I want and have a desire to grow in my ability to show Jesus Christ's salvation through good works? And if you say, I find myself growing in that, I find myself Wanting to bring glory to God because of my good works? If that's the case, then now is a time for tremendous praise because you can be assured of your salvation. You can be assured that your faith is a living faith, and we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But if you're looking at your life and you say, I have really no proof that my life has good works or even a desire for good works. I'm too busy with me I'm too busy with the things that are in my life that I kind of just set aside good works because I'm too busy or I'm scared or it's not who I am. Then you need to ask yourself the hard question, how do I know my faith is not dead? Father God, we bow before you Sinners saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners who have professed faith that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that He has given us the Holy Spirit that will move us as creatures who have been changed by faith to be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be known throughout the world, so the gospel of Jesus Christ can be seen in a way that the world needs to see it. Father, help us to be a church. Help us to be individuals that are zealous for good works. Help us not to allow life to get in the way, so much so that we will lay aside good opportunities for good works because it just doesn't fit into my schedule. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.